Fulhamish is brought to you by NordVPN, a way of accessing sports matches, TV shows and films which aren't available in your region by switching your virtual location to a country which is showing the event. For instance, if you want to follow the Ashes or the Formula One this summer whilst you're on holiday using your existing subscriptions, you can do that just by flicking back your location to the UK. Or if you find a channel overseas that shows the sports matches you want at a much cheaper price, you can flick your location over to there and get around the geo blocks that are in place. NordVPN is roughly the same price as a cup of coffee a month and you can very easily make your money back with the savings you'll find on subscriptions, flights and so many other things. Right now, you can grab an exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash Fulhamish to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus a bonus gift. Best of all, it's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Once again, that's nordvpn.com slash Fulhamish. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish podcast. Rennie Mullins Dean may only have spent two and a half months in charge at Fulham. He packed more drama into that spell than many managers do in years. Very disappointed, uh, very frustrating. Welcome to the inaugural Fulham folklore, where we look back at iconic FFC players, moments, managers, and seasons. And we start today with arguably the birth of Fulham's banter era. Maguire, Villa, Sheffield United have won it. Late goals, annihilating defeats, impromptu badminton matches, and even a transfer chase for 2013's bad boy of football. We got knocked back, it got rejected, and so we need to review it and, and move on. Today, we look back at the tales of Rennie Mullenstein's 76-day reign at Craven Cottage. Here to discuss it all, Drew Heatley, hello. Hello. And Farrell Monk, hello. Hello, Sammy James. Putting this together... I think we might be starting a bit too strong. As in, I've gone back through the archives. I know you both have done a bit of research too. And Drew, what a wild two and a half months this man had in charge of Fulham FC. Almost just anything, anything that could happen, happened to Rennie Mullenstein. Lots of it self-inflicted too. Yeah, I mean, you said in the intro there, it was the, arguably the start of our banter era. And I'd say it absolutely is. I mean, everything that... You know, Yo was uh, it was a uh, you know one one case study, but the beginning of the Bandit era was was appointing Rene, and then and everything that happened uh, after that, it was absolutely crazy. And as you say, seventy five days. I mean, if Twitter was bigger than it was, it was still in its relatively fledgling days. I think it would have been uh, crazy, and having a pod as well would have been absolutely. We would have been off our feet, rushed off our feet with probably three emergency emergency pods every uh, couple of weeks. God, yeah. I, sometimes when I look back at, at certain moments in Fulham history, I'm like, oh, could you imagine if we had Fulhamish then? We'd have had, we'd have had such fun. I mean, we'd have also been tearing our hair out, Farrell, for for much of it. I mean, the 13-14 season, Farrell, was um, kind of the beginning of the decline for Fulham. Obviously, it was when we got relegated. Shahid Khan's first season in charge of Fulham. And, and looking back in hindsight, the writing was on the wall ever since the end of the season before when 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 Martin Yol just went on this horror run that really spelt the beginning of the end. Yeah, it was you know, I think when people look back in hindsight, a lot of fans will probably point towards the sort of middle part of the Yol era as the as the start of the decline and it's the relegation uh season was 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 a was a long time coming. Um and yeah, the the start of the Shahid Khan era, he must not look back on with great with great memories. That transition period in between Yol and Mullenstein was such a chaotic affair as well. You know, let's not forget that Mullenstein was actually brought in as a head coach, which yeah. you would imagine in the, in today's era is just manager. So automatically, Martin Yol must have thought, well, this is a bit odd right here. But um, you know, obviously that when Mullenstein came in, he 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 was he was tasked with sort of being that head coach role and probably being the man on the man on the training pitch. Well, Yol, who said at the time when under when he was under pressure, uh, said he said something along the lines of, I, "I don't mind. My life will not change if if Fulham get relegated or I get sacked. I, I'll be okay." Which doesn't mm. really endear you to the fan base too much. Uh, and probably was more comfortable in the in the heated uh, office of of Motspur Park rather than actually training with the players. 
the the whole uh, the whole appointment, as you said, uh, Val, you know, head coach. That's a synonym to layman like you and I. That's a synonym for manager, and it was all very Gerard Houllier, Roy Evans vibes from the moment that he came in. And what I also found really strange is that um, you know, Yol saying that he was chasing uh, Mullenstein, uh, ch- uh, tried to get him three times. He says, which you know might might be rubbish, but. Uh, he's denying in a press conference that he's uh, that 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 the deal's been done to bring him in before he comes, and that's reported on the on the Fulham uh, on the Fulham FC website, which you just wouldn't see nowadays. Uh, you know, if you even mention a a player's name or anything that's not confirmed, uh, everybody shuts up like a clam. So it's uh, it was quite interesting that from the very beginning. It was a very different club uh, to what we have today. Yeah, well, I mean, Martin Yole's season, the thirteen fourteen season, Farrell, it was pretty poor just with a few spots of bright moments i know you were there on that uh very first game of that season away at sunderland when Paitim kasami um scored a a hugely undeserved winner for fulham and obviously Paitim it was kind of the Paitim kasami era wasn't it as well obviously we all know what he did against crystal palace uh around seven or eight games later but those moments were like brief high spots in what otherwise was a pretty torrid start to the season for y'all yeah, and <laughs> it was so. I mean, for anyone who took that marathon bet buses up to up to Sunderland, you know what a fantastic, unexpectedly fantastic day it was. You know, from the early start, everyone thinking that it would be a bright season ahead, all that lovely expectation. To Lewis Bermorte pu- pulling pints uh, in the pub beforehand, uh, just outside, what? just outside Sunderland. I didn't know about that. Yeah, he was. He he had travelled up. Each of the coaches were given given a, a name, and I remember that I was on the Damien Duff bus, which was which was uh, which was a, a small little thing. Did it stay in the left lane? Wait, well, no. He he was. Um, he operated on the right hand side as much as the left hand side. Oh, okay. It switched, did it? Yeah, it just weaving through the traffic. It just never went in the just never went in the middle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, everyone got a uh, an. A third shirt as well for free, which I still have um, somewhere at the bottom. I don't wear it that much, I must admit. But yeah, it was that that was such a that was such a brilliant day out. Um, Kasami getting his goal were very unexpected because he hard he'd actually signed the year previous and hardly featured. So him getting a starting berth was almost a surprise as well. But yeah, that was that was one of the few bright sparks. Uh, although thinking about it, I think that we actually ended up with quite a lot of away wins that year unexpectedly as well. I think we ended yeah. up with like four or five, which when you think about it, Fulham getting seven, the year just gone 22-23, it's not too far off. It was actually, what a wonderful away season it was. Let's just leave it as that. Yeah, it wasn't so uh, it wasn't so clever at home. Well, look, um, Martin Yol was, was really, really struggling despite some notable results and uh, was in a terrible malaise. Uh, and he even uh, said this to the press after Fulham's 4-0 defeat by Liverpool. How hard are times for you at this moment? Oh, of course, you know, if you play against the United and the Liverpools, you know, you have to get these games out of the way and you have to get your points probably and your wins against other teams like we did before this sequence of three games. You know, we had uh, two or three defeats on the trot. Before that, we, uh, we had a win against Crystal Palace and we had a win against Stoke and, and now, of course, Everton. But you would like to have a result against the top sides and, and we couldn't do that. But, of course, it was, not a, it was a difficult schedule and especially if you go here, it was a the task was too big, you know, after conceding two goals from from corner and then a wide free kick. So it was four days after that Liverpool result where Yol gave that uh, press conference that uh, Rennie Mullenstein was appointed as head coach, working al- alongside Yol as an assistant. It was a very odd job title that they gave to Mullenstein. I mean, Drew, I remember those quotes from Yol at the time caused fury because whilst we appreciate that we're Fulham and they're Liverpool and that getting results against big clubs shouldn't be expected to say afterwards that we shouldn't be winning those. It's just a terrible attitude to have as a, as a, as a football manager. I mean, this is not like um, Horsham going to Chelsea. We're, we're, we're a Premier League club on merit. You shouldn't just be forfeiting games. 
Yeah, and it's funny. We always have these things about oh, we want we want footballers and managers to be honest. We want them to drop all of the uh, cliches and 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 follow all in this football parlance. But when they do, we we don't like it, right? I can remember a David Moyes quote. Uh, it was the beginning of the season, but I don't think they even kicked the ball when he was Sunderland manager, and he was like, "This is going to be a horrible season. You know, we're going to be fighting relegation." And it was it was him just being honest. But uh, you know, everyone obviously understandably up in arms, and that's and that's kind of what we were doing too. We want we want managers just to be honest but also we want them to inspire us and and that was just indicative of the malaise that was happening with uh yo and wider you know it wasn't just martin yo but he was uh he was the figurehead at that point and you could tell his heart wasn't necessarily in it and uh it was it was dawning on us that it was probably going to be the end of his uh of his reign yeah so Rennie Mullenstein, I, I've done a bit of digging into his past his his record as a player is basically there is not that much information. Uh, He played mostly in the Dutch lower leagues, became a coach at 27 um, and spent a long time at Manchester United. So he joined in 2007 as a technical skills development coach, which, um, and then in 2008 became first team coach after Carlos Quiros took the Portugal job. Now I always kind of thought that he was Sir Alex's number two. Again, a bit of a weird job title. You think first team coach, like, but actually Mike Phelan was the assistant. And so Rene was kind of Sir Alex's number three, remained there until 2013 when Sir Alex retired and Moyes brought in his own coaching staff. I mean, Farrell, it's kind of mad that we appointed him. His only record in charge of a team properly was he, after Man United, he joined, uh, I've got to pronounce this correctly, Anzi Mohukachkala as Gus Hiddink's number two. Gus Hiddink stayed for two games and then Rennie became head coach. And after 16 games as head coach of Anzi, he was sacked. This was his only managerial pedigree before then he joined Fulham. So we definitely, I think, brought him in based on the fact that he was part of Sir Alex's coaching staff. That was the only real pedigree he had for, for being either high up or in charge of a side like Fulham. I think it's indicative of of those early calm eras where it's kind of just acting before actually thinking. Um, you know, very often we see um, clubs nowadays will probably twist with their manager knowing that they've got someone lined up pretty sharpish. Um, but in this case, they probably thought, okay, Fulham are hemorrhaging results right now. They're not anywhere close to picking up, turning around their form and we've got to do something about it. And the easiest thing to do is just, is just to sack the manager without, without much thought. Um, and, um, you know, the thought of actually making, when you think, when you think back on it and making Rene Millenstein the, the full-time manager probably wasn't the best decision they could have absolutely made. Um, maybe that they were tapping up managers left, right and centre like we see Spurs nowadays and they just were not getting their targets. But, you know, it does look like a puzzling choice on paper now that you look back. He was um, he was he was fashionable with the football hipsters, wasn't he? You know, as you say, Sammy, he's part of the backroom staff with Ferguson, and you can see sort of parallels with uh, Mullenstein's later tenure at Fulham. Of the short tenure, we'll probably get onto it. You know, lots of people in the backroom staff, lots of big names that are known to people, and he's obviously that was the way he was used to. Um, but I remember at the, I remember at the time him being highly sort of uh, you know the the broadsheet writers were very high on him, and it was the sort of uh, oh this could be a really clever move from Fulham, but what I find interesting what you just said Sam is the the parallels between uh, his time in in Russia and then uh, at Fulham as well coming in as this uh, Trojan horse coach uh, to a bigger name and then suddenly taking the top job and uh, the higher up the higher ups quite quickly discovering that he maybe he wasn't the man for the top job and and being chucked out just as quick as he came in it's it's quite an interesting uh, parallel yeah, I mean, what a year he had. So um, it was the 1st of December after a fifth consecutive Fulham league defeat that Fulham actually sacked Martignol, gave Rene the top job. Although interestingly, his job title stayed the same. He was still the head coach, um, which is kind of wild, really. That, that right, On paper, he had no promotion, but he just got, you know, he can have Martin's desk now. Uh, his first game was against Tottenham at Craven Cottage. Super run this one. It's the Jagger. It's 1-0. What a moment for Askan de Jagger to pop up with a goal like that. Fulham 1, Tottenham 0. 
Runs from behind the goal. Here's Kita Kessel. Oh, he's called that! Goodness me, he's called that! His first Tottenham goal! And he has blasted it in from range! Hoping a little bit of space! And a spectacular finish! So it was a 2-1 defeat against Spurs in um, Mullenstein's first game in charge. But Farrell, I remember watching that game. Fulham were amazing that night and was so unlucky. That Dejago goal was a, a beautiful move, finished expertly by by Ashcan, who I still love to this day. I still just I can't get enough of Ashcan Dejago. I wish he could have had a better career for us or a better ending at least. Um Fulham were really improved. I remember being very optimistic after that. Yeah, um, I do too, actually. And I think it was it was kind of like when we started seeing De Jaga performing to the level that we know that he could. Um, and yeah, it, it was it was a very sort of spirited performance. I think that it was a probably a culmination of actually going, okay, we need to. Sp- Mullenstein and Yola probably, they've been chopping and changing quite a lot up until that point um, in the year. I know that Hughes and it, they, especially in defense, like I think they, they experimented with like Hughes and Senderos and Amorabieta and uh, Hangeland, although Hangeland was injured for quite a lot of Mullenstein's, Mullenstein's era as well. So, but yeah, I think it was probably the time when we started to settle a bit and, you know, it was a real spirited performance, but I think that it, it was, probably again indicative of what it was going to be like some promising signs, but they just were too, too soft at the back and too soft all around and just couldn't keep up with the pace of the Premier League and just kept on, you know, we could score some goals, but we were just letting in so many. And especially in this time when it was two, two late-ish goals as well. Um, And especially one from, from uh, Lewis Holtby, who we can talk about, talk about shortly. Yeah, he's part of the uh, 76 day drama, isn't he? Uh, he really uh, uh, made himself known to Fulham fans at this period of time. Um, and Drew, uh, a few days later, we did actually pick up that first win. Aston Villa, 2-0, fairly comfortable uh, 2-0 win as well um, for, for Fulham. And at that point, you're thinking, well, you've got a good result, well, you've got a good performance against a top team in Spurs and then a, a, a nice, comfortable 2-0 win against Aston Villa. I think we'd have all been given for thinking, oh, okay, I think actually this might be a managerial appointment that works out. Yeah, you could see there was a, a, a real se- a, a sense of togetherness that wasn't uh, necessarily there before. Um, and you say it was, yeah, it was absolutely uh, a routine win. I think it was uh, two goals in the first half an hour um, in that game against Villa, done and dusted before half time. Um, and obviously coming off the back of what was uh, so many different, uh, so many losses in in all competitions, uh, you, you, we were all forgiven for thinking that that we were on the up. Um, but it was very feast and famine at that up to that point anyway. I think we'd had one draw in the Premier League all season. So if we weren't winning, we were losing. Um, and you could sort of see that we needed to have that togetherness uh, if we wanted to have any chance of staying up. So I think, yeah, uh, it was a, a new manager bounce of sorts. Uh, not not the most, re- not the biggest we've ever seen in the Premier League, but, you know, at least we were getting some wins on the table. Just to add to the banter era, that game, even though Fulham was such relegation fodder, it was the scene of the much meme-worthy Berbatov first touch where the the ping across the ping across the uh, the pitch and Berbatov basically yes. the ball glued to his feet. It's it's magical. Yeah. You would never expect that from from such a team that was like pretty much eighteenth or nineteenth in the league at the same at the stage. Yeah. I mean, I was I was going to ask actually. I'm glad you brought it up because I was I knew that we also I remember it was a Villa game that we won. We did beat Villa the season before and we'd have had Berbatov at that time, but it was it that game where it was the famous Berbatov touch. Yeah, it was, it was. I did look that I did look that one just to check. Um and I, I remember Googling it and just seeing the image and just seeing the the biggest standout thing from that season um that you can get from any image is the the weird Fulham home shirt with the man cleavage style black collar mm. thing that stretches down that that you can see from a mile away and can recognize that season instantly often a correlation isn't there between shit shirts and shit seasons um and that's definitely one of them <laughs> it's not the worst shirt in the world in fact i've got a uh, i've got a long sleeve medium on vintage uh, at drew healy if anyone wants to buy it so uh, yeah, it's a great shirt <laughs> 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 
Just using Fulhamish as your uh, <laughs> advertising tool for your vintage um, collection. Fair enough. Is it, did you say um, it was medium? Did you say it was medium? I think so. Yeah, I don't, uh, uh, yeah I'm was, not interested. Uh, sorry. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm a medium. I'll have that. Although I just <laughs> slagged it off. So maybe I don't deserve the uh, your shirt. <laughs> so after Villa, uh, two defeats in a row, our customary yearly uh, spanking by Everton at Goodison Park. And then we played quite an entertaining game against Manchester City uh, at the Cottage just before Christmas. Vincent Company scoring one of the most hilarious own goals uh, of all time. Obviously, uh, this is a Man City team that uh, were very much not at the peak of their powers, because I'd say that's now, but they, uh, they, they'd they won the league. They were a good team. It was no disgrace to lose uh, 4-2 to them. And then came this incredible Christmas period uh, for, for Rene Mullenstein. It started off uh, with a late winner by Scott Parker at Norwich. That win meant that Fulham were up to 18th, level on points with Palace, who were in 17th. And uh, Rene was very happy with his captain. What a goal from Scott Parker. Yeah, well, he pulled that one out of the back. Fantastic. I think his first touch was excellent. That set him up. And then to strike it that quickly, which, which gave really no chance. So, and, and if it's anybody that deserved that winning goal and who's a bit sort of typifies the character of the team and where we are, then it's Scott Parker, the captain. Farrell, another uh, big away win, as you mentioned earlier. That, that one was, uh, felt pretty important at the time. Yeah, it was, it was massive. I mean, Norwich were down there as well with us. So it was, it was a big three points for, for Fulham. And, you know, maybe going into the new year, there was a, was a bit of optimism, um, you know, for all of Scott Parker's popularity with, within the Fulham base. I think Mullenstein was actually right. Like, you know, um, the, the sweaty, fatigued outlook that Scott Parker had on the pitch at all times and dancing around in circles. I think it does, you know, it is actually the fact he actually worked so hard on the pitch for the team. And, you know, that you could definitely see that in the later years when we're in the championship. And, you know, you never know what these players are like in the dressing room and probably was a net positive figure and trying to G up the players. So was pretty integral to the team. But yeah, another, another, Nice away win there to to take us into the new year. Yeah, well, uh, what wasn't a nice away win to take us into the new year was <laughs> what happened next against Hull at the KC Stadium. Now, Hull were battling relegation too. Uh, they'd been on a five-match winless run uh, going into this game that was just a couple of days after Boxing Day. A brutal Christmas uh, fixture list for Fulham. Away at Norwich, away at Hull. Like, that shouldn't be allowed to happen, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, they generally try and do local games over Christmas, but clearly that year they just didn't fancy it for Fulham. Nil-nil uh, at half time, but then Fulham conceded six goals in just 35 minutes. It's still Fulham's record Premier League defeat and Hull's record Premier League win. And uh, as you can imagine, uh, Rene was uh, pretty shell-shocked. Rene, what can you say after that second half display? Well, shocked, really. Um... I don't know whether it was something in the tea or something, but I didn't see that coming and the players didn't see it coming. And especially on the basis on, you know, when we started a few weeks ago when we had a really run of tough, tough difficult games, which I thought the performances were really good. Uh, but today it was just, you know, it was not just not good enough. And after the first half, we, we didn't play particularly well, I thought. But we were still in the game, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I just didn't see it coming. And then, and then obviously they scored quickly after the half time, after the break. And then there was this spell between 60 to 67 minutes where they scored three goals and game over. I mean, Drew, in terms of bleak Fulham away days, now I know there'll have been some in the 90s and the defeat to Lee RMI and things like that. But in the modern Fulham era, it doesn't get much bleaker than that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was a, a terrible Christmas, and it's all. I remember it for the uh, Tom Huddleston saying he would never cut his hair until he scored, and he ended up with this huge afro. And then, of of course, any Fulham fan, you know, the podcast is named after. I think we were all going into that game thinking, well, even if we lose one 0 or two one, it's uh, you know he's going to get a goal or even the winner. And sure enough, he he even got on the score sheet and had his hair chopped off on the sideline. It was just. It was just absolutely awful all the way through, and and you know you it's sandwiched between the Norwich win and then uh, and then a win against West Ham in the next game. So it does show that it was a a bit of an anom anomaly, almost as strange as uh, Mullenstein's accent in these clips, by the way, because uh, I've yes. never this Dutch mank accent is just really screwing <laughs> my mind. Unreal. <laughs> 
I can only think that the intonation between the Dutch accent and the Manchester accent is quite close. I mean, we're going into like, you know, language acquisition here, so maybe we should move on. But it was, it's very strange. I know. I wanted to, I wanted to talk about his accent because it is really odd. It's like a bit of Dutch and a bit of Mank. And it's like, I can't quite get my head around it. Is it like the opposite of like when Joey Barton like goes, is, yes. is that what, is that the, is that the basically the same thing that, you know, he's just trying to assimilate? Netherlands, yeah. I guess, but like, at least McLaren. Rene's doing it, at least Rene's doing it in like the language he's supposed to be talking in, not Joey Barton <laughs> just speaking like broken English um, effectively so that the French could try and understand him. So, I mean, look, he's clearly quite, he's got, actually got, I mean, like lots of Dutch people have got a good mastering of the language. It's just this weird twang that he's picked up, but I guess he spends a lot of time in Manchester, right? So it, it makes sense. It's just odd. Um, so two days after that Hull defeat, Ray Wilkins brought in as assistant head coach. Alan Kerbishley uh, had been appointed technical director on, on Christmas Eve. I mean, Drew, by this point, we were just throwing shit at the wall, hoping it would stick. If anyone had like half a bit of pedigree, they were, they were in. I mean, it was just random names being plucked out of obscurity and just like, will this work? Dunno. Here's a bit of Kerbishley. Here's a bit of Wilkins. Um, it was, it was just a mess, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was. Um, I, I don't know whether it was around this time or slightly after, but you know, Kerbishley was making himself available for every single job <laughs> ever came up in 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 English football. It was that Twitter account, uh, Kerbishley, I'm available. And as soon as a mm-hmm. as soon as the manager got sacked, it was it came out, and he eventually. I'm pretty sure it was around that time because he eventually comes. Uh, you know, Fulham, I'm available, and here he comes in a, albeit in a slightly different role. Um, I don't know. You know, for all of the. Uh, for all of the sort of fashionable nature of Mullenstein and, and, you know, being one for the future in terms of coaching, you know, Wilkins and Kerbishley are, you know, the opposite of that. So I don't know whether that Khan was advised that maybe you want to get an established name in English football in. I don't know. Um, but obviously, you know, Wilkins himself had been sacked by the club uh, 12, 13 years earlier. Um, so he'd already tried that. And Kerbishley, I think his time had come and gone by then, uh, by that point too. So, uh, you know, if, if Mullenstein was fashionable, these guys certainly were the old uh, trench coat in the back of your wardrobe that you didn't want to put on i mean farrell you you see what's happening um up the road uh at stanford bridge and and todd bowley making kind of odd choices on on much better money just throwing shit at the wall and shade khan's early era just massively had that vibe about it as well didn't really know what they were doing being advised terribly in 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 some cases and just hoping for the best i mean you look back at it now there was no way we were staying up with this this amount of chaos at the club yeah and obviously that his worst decision that we haven't talked about yet is removing the michael jackson statue obviously which was the (laughs) obviously the uh the catalyst for the downturn in fulham's fortunes so yeah as drew mentioned uh we did actually win the next game against west ham it would be dimitar berbatov's final goal uh for fulham uh the winner in that and then we entered the transfer window and, and what a weird transfer window it was. So, um, Farrell, we'd actually made one signing before the transfer window, uh, on Christmas Eve, we confirmed that Clint Dempsey would return to Craven Cottage from the Seattle Sounders on loan. And, um, Dempsey's a legend. We know that we shouldn't ever talk about the second loan spell though. Um, but, uh, let's break the rules for a minute because, uh, this was not one that was pretty, was it? Yeah, I remember I, I went up to the Norwich FA Cup game and I think that was Clint Dempsey's second debut. I think he came off the bench and wow, I've never seen someone so off the pace of Premier League football. It it was like watching me play Premier League football. It was, it, I was just, they were just so much slower than everyone else on the pitch. Um I mean, yeah, I think, I think it just, I think basically Dempsey just bought into the banter era that you've, that you've alluded to. Um, you know, it was, it was quite depressing to watch, but, and it was only like a short term loan because the MLS season was due to begin again in a couple of months yeah. time. So, so he's, he like played a few games, started to get his match fitness back, but essentially it was just his preseason. So by the time he'd got his match fitness back and was starting to be slightly effective, he was back off to the MLS again. So perhaps probably not the best signing in the world. But they say you should never go back. But I, I'm a football romantic. 
I mean, I would, I would have, I, you know, I would pay to see him now play for Fulham. No, I think we all kind of were like excited at the time. I remember tweeting about it and being like, oh yeah, Dempsey's back. This is so good. And then just like, oh uh, yeah, maybe we should have uh, left the memory as, uh, as good as it was. It's definitely not soiled his uh, reputation in the long term. But um, I think at the time everyone was a bit like, oh, this is, this is not too clever. Uh, however, the window talk uh, was kind of dominated by a, a player who never arrived. Okay, is it true you've had a bid, you put in a bid for Ravel Morrison? Yes, we did. And any outcome on that? Well, we got we got knocked back, it got rejected, and so we need to review it and, and move on. And do you think you'll increase your bid or go back to another one? I left it with Alistair McIntosh. We know, uh, you know, I've explained how I think about the situation, so I have to wait and see what happens. Do you get, does the player want to come here? Yes. He does want to come Drew, this was not the hill to die on, was it? <laughs> I mean, absolutely not. I mean, I think uh, we tried uh, fring pong the year before, and you know we're going for all of these uh, these perceived bad boy players. I mean, Rabbi Morrison. I mean, for all of this talent that he clearly had, he's never we, time has been uh, the real judge on that one, and he's never never filled it. Um, I suppose it was probably quite semi exciting at the time because it hadn't he hadn't really he um, wasn't a busted flush then, but um, just loose lips from Rennie like. Crikey! I mean, just I don't know why this surprises me so much. I think now because you know Fulham FC is like North Korea when it comes to sort of news, uh, just real tight lip. But he's just chatting away, just saying all sorts. So it's it's great. I prefer it, but it's just uh, I didn't I don't remember it being quite so loose. But yeah, Morrison, uh, maybe I think it was a definitely a dodged bullet because as I say, time time's been the judge on that one. Uh, two high fly players did depart uh, Farrell. Brian Ruiz uh, went to PSV on loan and then Dimitar Berbatov to, to Monaco. Um, nothing kind of sums up the, uh, the decline really of those players um, leaving. It was interesting in the uh, podcast that uh, Berbatov did with the club when he talks about that time and he doesn't really actually go into specifics, but he's just like, I had to get out of there. Yeah, I think the, the the way he talks about the club is basically the way he probably talks about Martin Yole. You could substitute those two things. He essentially joined Fulham for Martin Yole and left because Martin Yole was no longer there. That's basically what I took from it. Um, he talks about the club being beautiful and all this whatnot, but really he's just imagining a fat bull Dutchman when he's when he's there. Really. Um, Brian Ruiz, on the other hand, I, I, I have a real soft spot for Brian Ruiz. I thought he was a magical player. Um, I thought that he had, he had so much in his locker and, you know, he could unlock defences at will. And it was just such a shame. It was just the right player at the wrong time, I, I thought. You know, if, imagine if we had him alongside, you know, alongside some of these players that we have now, like, you know, mm. the sort of ilk of Tom Kearney, but, you know, just a bit, you know, a bit more extra, just that little bit extra quality, and it showed when in the in the in the World Cup afterwards, he was pretty much he was pretty much one of the world world's best players for Costa Rica as they're bamboozling uh, some of the world's best talent. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you could see that you're right in the sense that it was it was like fleeing a sinking ship, really, or the best. But it wasn't women and children first; it was the best footballers leaving first, <laughs> the prettiest ones first. Um, yeah. And then when it comes to um, bringing in players, Fulham were pretty busy, uh, brought in a further six players in addition to to Dempsey. And this list of players coming in is just sensational. <laughs> First two, both from Manchester United, uh, clearly Mullenstein using his contacts to bring in Ryan Tunnicliffe and Larnell Cole. I mean, Drew, Larnell Cole is one of those players that kind of goes down, I mean, in Fulham folklore in a way. I mean, I don't know if we'd have enough to talk about him for an entire podcast, but... Um, what a weird signing. And and I mean, Tunnicliffe did actually go on to do some stuff for Fulham later on, but, but Cole was this man that we almost never saw. Yeah, Tunnicliffe was known to many, I think, when he came in, like uh, one of those highly rated youngsters, certainly in the in the same mould as uh, Ravel Morrison, but obviously with less of, the, less of the reputation. So I was quite excited about that. Lionel Carr, I remember not knowing too much about and, and never ended up knowing anything about, really. He's up there with uh, Lee Cook as, uh, and, and Yari Littman and as those sort of uh, <laughs> Fulham players who, were they really or were they just holograms, we'll never really know. Um, that was a very that was a really strange one, and it's you know that's probably one of the 
those two signings when they came in, it was like you say, like uh, flexing his little little black book when it came to players that up at Carrington or wherever it is the academy trained. But uh, yeah, I mean, Tannercliffe sort of treaded water for a little bit, didn't he? And he had a terrible charm, which I hated, and uh, Cole did nothing. <laughs> It's uh, when you actually look down the list of the names that Fulham brought in, not just in January, but in the summer prior, they are just there is it's a forgotten Fulham in itself. Um, you know, players like Elsad Zveritic, William Quist, Murmur Tankovic, who we'll talk about uh, coming up, but it's just a remarkable list of names of signings that was sort of just you know of that era, really. And yeah. and if you're drowning in if you're drowning in a relegation dogfight, uh, what's the point in swapping like for like? Like I just think of the Spider Man meme pointing at each other, and I think Senderos out, John Heitinger in. Like, right, cool. Ooh, I think I disagree with that. <laughs> Johnny Heitinger was a big old upgrade, and actually was yeah. maybe the only hope I feel like that Fulham had, particularly during the McGath era. He actually gave us some real solidity at the back. I remember we all looked at trying to. You know, could we sign him when we went down to the championship? And I think Johnny Heitinger was like, no, I don't fancy that. But he was he was a little bit of a class above. But obviously the signing that really um, <laughs> grabs your attention when you look at this list of uh, signings, all made on either January the 30th or the 31st, was Kostas Matroglu from Olympiakos, 11 million Farrell. Um, famously, we went for him over Antoine Griezmann. <laughs> <laughs> Again, banter era stuff, isn't it? I love it. Absolutely love it. I mean, it's great that we're looking back on it now, almost 10 years later, and that we're not actually doing a podcast now, as Drew was saying saying before about it. But yeah, I mean, everything about it screamed just wrong, wrong player. I mean, obviously there was a footballer there and since he left Fulham, he won league titles all over Europe. But he w- he was on pretty of like a long term ish injury, kept on coming backwards and forwards. I don't think he passed his medical, but we signed him anyway. But considering the timing of the signing and the fact that Berbatov had left and Ruiz had left, they were absolutely desperate to get to get a high profile striker in. So they're willing to take a punt on it. And hey, if you if you were there in attendance for his uh, for his appearance in the preseason friendly versus Crystal Palace. Uh, a couple of seasons later, you would have you would have seen what a player he was when he was fit. Unfortunately, yeah. he wasn't really fit ever for us and was pretty much useless for us. I remember um, we, uh, and I imagine this was like, if it wasn't in the Mullenstein era, it was only just after. And uh, he played a game for the under 21s and he's crashed one in from about 50 yards, lobbed the goalkeeper on the volley. And we were all like, here we go. And then we only ever got that famous one appearance uh, against uh, Cardiff City away by the time that uh, Mullenstein had gone. Uh, also, we brought in William Cavist, as you mentioned, Farrell from, from Stuttgart, who I thought was a very classy little player. Um, and, Lewis Holtby uh, from Spurs on loan. So as we mentioned, he scored that winner in Mullenstein's first game and Mullenstein went, I'll have a bit of him. And uh, and Holtby came in and actually uh, played pretty well under, under Mullenstein. Um, so let's have a look at uh, the January on the pitch. And... Um, I mean, it was a it was a torrid, torrid time for Fulham. After that West Ham win, lost four Premier League games on the bounce, including a mauling by Sunderland. They started the day three points adrift at the bottom of the league. Came to Craven Cottage, one four one. Adam Johnson scored a hat trick. Um, Drew, that was one of those days. It was a few in this season. That was one of those days. I was like. We are going down. This is the time. You cannot lose four ones of bottom of the league Sunderland and not think that you're in a big heap of trouble. Yeah, that was um, that was during the time where they'd mount those real last minute escapes and uh, and stay up every time and look doomed for the whole season. And yeah, to, that's the one that stands out for me even more so than than Hull in in many ways. Is just like that was that was us done. I just. It was a bit early to call it completely, but in the back of your mind, you're just thinking, well, 4-1 at home to Sunderland. I just don't know how you're supposed to come back from that. And of course, it started a a real terrible run of losses again. And and certainly by the end of it, our time in the Premier League was was pretty much up, I think. But um, yeah, that's that's probably the Nadir for me, even more so than the one that everyone remembers. 
Well, I was going to ask, is this the Nadir? Um, definitely one of the darkest moments of the season in the FA Cup. League One, Sheffield United forced a replay at Craven Cottage. Uh, the match was live on ITV. One of the worst games of football you'd ever seen. Driving rain, horrible. And the game looked to be heading to penalties, nil-nil. And then in the 119th minute, the Blades had a corner. Baxter with it. Maguire, Miller! Sheffield United have won it! 119 minutes on the clock! Oh, Farrell. Farrell, <laughs> that was... I've, I've been almost being in tears. Honestly, the, it wasn't just the hunt, those 119 minutes. It was also the the first game as well which was also terrible as well <laughs> it was just it was incredible um uh, the first game as well was particularly was particularly bad but yeah the second one at home was was even worse it was just so bad it was so 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 bad like nothing happened in the entire thing i think the most entertaining thing was just listening to the sheffield Wednesday, uh, sheffield united fans singing their greasy chip butty song about 34 times basically throughout the entire game um, but apart from that, yeah, it was it was a sad old little trudge out of Craven Cottage at the end of that game. Thanks for bringing that back up. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, Drew, it was one of those that no relegation season is complete without uh, an embarrassing uh, loss to a side much lower than you in the football pyramid. I mean, another one of the the kind of nails in the coffin, really. Yeah, we had another one a few years later, didn't we, against Oldham, which I'll I'll never forget. I think uh, I think Sheffield United though they had future Fulham defender Harry Maguire there, so you know they had something going for them. <laughs> um, but yeah, you I mean you you can't be doing that. I, I kind of almost separated because uh, it wasn't in the league, but like it's obviously a it's a it's indicative of the wider chaos going on. So uh, it wasn't necessarily a surprise at that point, but it was uh, it didn't hurt any less because of that. I do remember um, saying like one of those things to try and be positive about it afterwards was the fact that we went out to Bristol Rovers in the great escape season. And I remember saying like, oh, don't worry, we can now focus on the league. Remember that time when we got knocked out by Bristol Rovers in the FA Cup and then went on to stay up. So maybe it's not too bad after all. But obviously I was horribly wrong. Yes. It would have been. It would have been great if we actually did focus on the league at any point. But uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, we're now getting towards the end of Rene's tenure, but almost the kind of most controversial part of it, really. So it's looking tough for Rene. Can't lie. Uh, dumped out of the FA Cup in embarrassing fashion. Four league defeats on the bounce. Bottom of the Premier League uh, by this point. So what he probably didn't need uh, was a trip uh, to his old club Manchester United and then a game against red hot Liverpool at the cottage now this game against United is is iconic uh, Fulham took an early lead through Steve Sidwell United peppered Fulham's box with a record at the time 81 crosses uh, Johnny Heitinger and Dan Byrne headed everything away but the the home pressure eventually told Van Persie and Carrick scored uh, 10 minutes from time two kind of quick fire goals however in stoppage time this happened Sidwell and it's Kieran Richardson and Darren Bent it's 2-2 Fulham ahead for so long minute i remember it like it was yesterday Farrell. i remember going absolutely berserk when, when that happened and i mean a, a bleak season but there were just were these like little highlights in it that of like really incredible moments and that was one of them from a player that none of us have very fond memories of but that was his only kind of redeeming moment it's just one of those remarkable away days were you and there just, i was there yeah yeah i was there um and it was kind of like bittersweet that that Darren Bent goal because as I was celebrating, I twisted my knee and had to hobble <laughs> back to <laughs> hobble back to London very very slowly. So yeah, and had to have surgery on it. But that's another story. Um, but again, yeah, you're right. Like yeah, it was a crap season, but we live for those sort of like little moments and memories uh, throughout football. Um, you know, people might go like, "Oh, wasn't that season terrible?" I was like, "Yeah, it was really bad." However. I saw Darren Bent score a last minute equaliser at the Theatre of Dreams. Um, and also like 
you know, I thought that that day that Sidwell and and Holtby in the middle of the park at were, were so good, and it yeah. kind of showed how what quality that Lewis Holtby had on the ball. I mean, this was a player that I did they win the league? Which I think he won the league with with Schalke like only yeah. a few years previously, um, and was only sort of he came to Fulham because he wasn't really playing on uh, at Spurs. So you know, the fact to get him as a player in our midfield when we were pretty much at our lowest ebb. Um, in the Premier League at that time um, for Fulham was quite the coup, I thought. Um, but yeah, I think the whole sort of like thing around it, I think Tankovic starting, which was such yes. a massive surprise as well. Um, you know, I think it was the one few appearances that we got of Larnell Cole against his former club. Um, you can actually see him celebrating with Darren Brent. So there is some footage of him in in the man cleavage shirt as well. Um, just there's so many things around that day. Um, and it's probably, if you talk to Man United fans about the David Moyes era, it's the one they talk about as like the start of the end of, for, for his short tenure for the, the, the Alex Ferguson choice as manager. Yeah. And maybe I should probably say a, a, a half apology to Heitinger because uh, I think him and Dan Byrne against 81 crosses from United were pretty... Uh, Pretty good, actually. So, uh, you know, I'll caveat that. Uh, what a weird day. <laughs> it's such a strange match, though. Like, it was like they did well, Heitinger and Burn, but like they almost didn't have to like do that well. It was almost just yeah. so stupid from United. It was like the worst tactics ever. Um, and like Heitinger and Dan Burn mopped up. They definitely played well. Like, they deserved the credit, but almost like United played into our hands so much. It, it was. It's kind of reminiscent of how championship clubs played against us last season to try and stifle us. They would sort of just sit really, really compact, or like when West Ham earlier this season as well at home when they were at, when they weren't performing so well and they played so compact. They played everyone pretty much behind the ball, and they were like, right, okay, cross the ball. Let's see if you can get past Dawson or you know whoever at the back." Uh, and they just they dealt with it quite well, and yet. We were okay with it, especially with Dan Byrne at the back as well, in his correct position at centre-back, not right-back. Did very well, and it's great to see he's doing so well at the moment. Well, um, the following game was Liverpool at the Cottage, who were flying high. Uh, They so nearly won uh, the league uh, that season. Uh, Once again, Fulham scored an incredibly fluky uh, own goal. Uh, This time... It was uh, Colo Torre uh, who, who was responsible uh, for that own goal in such a similar fashion to the Vincent Company one. Uh, Lightning very much striking twice. Uh, Fulham went ahead again in the second half from Kieran Richardson, who kind of was one of the, alongside maybe Steve Sidwell, one of the few players to come out that season with some credit, I think, Kieran Richardson. Uh, however, Liverpool got back on level terms and in stoppage time, we gave away a penalty. Here goes Gerrard and Liverpool do lead in stoppage time. The captain delivers. The Liverpool travelling fans salute the moment. Stockdale went the right way, but Gerrard had the height and the power. And that was to be Rene Mullenstein's final game in charge of Fulham. Sacked just three days later. And it was another game, Drew, where we played brilliantly in that match. And it was no real shame or judgment on Fulham that a team like Liverpool, who was so on, on such a magic run that year, were to come to the cottage and win. So like, it means that Mullenstein's final two games, like, there, was a lot of, there was a lot of optimism after both of those, really. Yeah, and that's why the one of the overriding memories of uh, the overriding opinion for most of us is uh, he should have been given more time. Uh, not 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 least because we decided to replace him with an absolute psychopath, but we had those two games where, again, you started to feel like things are on the up. Now you know, in a relegation season, with hindsight, you can you can always point to these things and say false dawns. But I think uh, yeah, that Liverpool side was was different gravy, and uh, to get to that point at Old Trafford was was actually getting some points on the board. So I think yeah, we definitely had that. Um, but of course, when you know it was his last game, but if you go onto the Fulham website, you will never see a Rene departs a Rene departs uh, article because we never we never announce his departure. We just announced Magas' arrival, which is just typical of the uh, of the chaos and the carnival 
of the early Shad Khan days. Um, just imagine that happening now. Yes, Megath's in, but uh, what's happening to Mullenstein? Well, no, nobody really knows. And then he himself just said that they panicked and pulled the trigger on him, but we never get that official stamp of uh, see you later, good luck in your future. Yeah, well, it's interesting really, isn't it? I think, like, Drew, this is almost a, a, a bit of a side conversation, but it's it's before I feel like club communications were as sanitised and overly thought as they are now. It was still the kind of early days of social media. that there, there wasn't policies in place. People weren't quite as hot on it as I feel like in 2023. There are meetings and plans and a uh, kind of things to follow um, when when changing managers, et cetera etc uh Rene did actually give uh, an interview to five live uh immediately after being sacked and this is what he said uh good evening Rene. good evening uh great to have you on um well can i start by offering my condolences that you've lost your job at fulham and, and can i get your reaction to it please yeah um very very surprised very disappointed uh very frustrating as well as because um you know that the, the the job that i stepped into was uh was one that uh, that came by surprise from the start because that wasn't anticipated within uh, you know Martin you're leaving and then you obviously have to step in a situation which is not the best for a start so you need to try to um, you need to try to um, to make things better as soon as you can but you know you're playing with uh, with a deck of cards that are not yours and um, you're trying to do something about it in, in a transfer window which I thought we did really really well. Um, but then you, you haven't really been given any time um, to really make that work. I thought the, uh, the performances against Manchester United and Liverpool the other day were very, very good. It was unfortunate that, again, that we, we didn't pick up the poise that we deserved, but that's a little bit the story of the season. But 12 games to go, plenty of, of points to play for, and I'm sure we would have we would have turned it around. I mean, Farrell, he definitely gives the impression that Fulham panicked, effectively, there. Um, I mean, I know there's there's not more to that interview, but... Yeah, I, I think he, he he had a point. He had a right to be a bit miffed, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think people are a bit split over whether he was given enough time in that role. But I think from the club's point of view, it sounded like he was never going to be the long-term replacement anyway. Um, I think it was only in the unlikely situation that Mullenstein was able to turn this team, turn the team around, and get a lot of get a lot of results. Um, and then they would have no choice to appoint him as full-time manager a la Kit Simons just a year later. Um, but in this situation, I think that the club probably saw enough that, you know, the writing was on the wall and they were going to have to do any, anything to do that. However, from a personal point of view, well, I don't, I'm not entirely sure whether that was the right decision because, you know, Yol wanted to bring Raleigh Mullenstein. I wasn't a, I wasn't actually a huge fan of Martin Yol being sacked at the time that he was because I, I thought he was able to bring in enough players and had actually produced results good enough um, to be able to to uh, get the team out of it and had brought in Rene Mullenstein. So they probably had a style of play that they were going to go to to completely um, push that into disarray um, by bringing in Felix Magath wasn't the right decision at all. But this is just very indicative of running a football club. They don't think necessarily managerial appointments through that deeply. They go for what is essentially results on the pitch. And you look at Rene Mullenstein's record that, Sammy, that you talked about earlier, and you look at the record of Felix Magath, who had won three Bundesligas, who had taken teams out of relegation and done really well with them. And you think on paper that was going to be a good managerial appointment but in reality it turned out not to be yeah I think um, whatever you think of Mullenstein and whether he did deserve more time or, or whatever you think about his time at Fulham I think there was a tacit understanding then and now that you know three managers in a season is never a good look and never really works and certainly doesn't work at Craven Cottage because we've seen it more than once uh, if you can believe <laughs> it uh, no lessons need to be learned etc we won't go into that um, so <laughs> you know I don't think uh, I think we all knew that there shouldn't have been a third I think what's really interesting about the season when, it, when it's all said and done is you look at um all three managers and it's split almost into equal thirds, you know, uh, 13 for Yol, albeit two of them with Mullenstein, 13 for Mullenstein and 12 for Magat. And they all had pretty much identical records, uh, three wins, one draw, 
Uh, oh no, sorry, three wins for everybody, and then uh, one draw for Yo and and Rennie, and then three for McGath, and then the rest are losses. So it none and it did nothing worked, did it? I mean, they tried to shuffle the deck. It's like you know, it's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. If we can have another Titanic based analogy, there was never <laughs> there was never this team wasn't for saving, was it? Which uh, which is strange because we've had far worse relegation seasons since uh, this one, which makes this one look not as chaotic and as bad as it probably was at the time. Um, but there was, I think there was just yeah nothing that anyone could have done really. So we got um, some opinions on Twitter. Uh, we we asked, um, what was the first thing you thought of when it comes to Rennie Mullenstein's time at Fulham? Uh, some fantastic answers here. Uh, Adbron Smith uh, said, his early games, it felt like there was an identity. Then whoever made the decision to bring an experience with him completely ruined it. Like two different sides under his tenure before and after. Uh, Bob Kane says, never really given a chance. Total shock at his dismissal after just 13 games. His spell in charge producing three wins. Uh, we had just drawn at Old Trafford and only lost to a late penalty against Liverpool the alternative was to prove a nightmare however you've got someone like Hugh Fordham saying you can have an inexperienced manager or inexperienced owners but you cannot have both at the same time uh, and MJG Mike Gregg uh, said out of his depth never a manager might have worked out in the championship with a younger group we'll, we'll never know his history since shows that he was never up to the job and, and Farrell when you look at Mullenstein afterwards he never really did it again. This is his only real spell in charge of a of a of a, of a club properly. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I think I think there's an element of like certain players are able to have bad patches at certain clubs where it just hasn't worked, and they're able to to go somewhere where they find they find their feet and they can actually perform at a level that you know that they think that they can do, but. Mullenstein obviously had his taste at manage at the managerial job and would, and noped straight out of there uh, straight away. Just probably couldn't handle the pressure. Probably couldn't handle um, the media responsibilities. Obviously, um, you know, it's 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 a shame because he seemed like quite a nice fellow. I've, I've got to admit, like he's quite honest and open about about his time at Fulham at, at the time. As as Drew was saying before, they're so they're close to the clam quite a lot now but you know it's quite refreshing that we have all this Mullenstein content to to go on right now even though his time at Fulham was so short I think it, you know Farrell you said maybe he couldn't handle things I think he just was never trusted again he was never trusted to begin with because you know he's you can see where he's brought in at Anzi and the way he's brought in at Fulham he was never trusted to be the main guy found himself in that position uh, and uh, and then from then on any any other club looks at him and doesn't want to make the same mistakes I think it was a trust thing um in for him and also you know there's that old adage do great coaches make great managers and that doesn't always translate either you know um so that could also be a factor um but i think it was hugh fordham on the tweets that you read out something who nailed it for me you know inexperienced manager inexperienced inexperienced owners but both at the same time i think it's a recipe for disaster uh, the final tweet that I wanted to reference, just because it, it's just got my imagination running wild. Uh, Lewis H uh, said his memory of Renny Munstein was him and Ray Wilkins fucking training off to play badminton. <laughs> <laughs> to which I was like, hang on, is this a story I've missed? Is this one of those little uh, references that I'd like not heard of? I Googled it. There was nothing about, there was nothing like some story somewhere about him and playing badminton. So we replied saying, hang on, what? Uh, and then Lewis kind of just said, oh yeah, something I got told. Um, Drew, who do you think won a, a badminton match between Rennie Mullenstein and, uh, and Ray Wilkins? There's no way, there's no way Ray Wilkins is letting Mullenstein get one over on him. The, the the good old fashioned pit bull, he's winning every time. Mullenstein's quite big though. He's got the frame. I imagine he's got the long reachy arms. I imagine it'd be hard to win a point against Rene. Yeah, that is true. That is true. But I think sometimes you can't uh, you can't beat good old fashioned tenacity. Maybe maybe there was like massive cross wires here because maybe they're thinking about Martin Yole. Uh, because Martin Yold has two brothers and they're called Dick and Cock. And maybe if there was a shuttlecock thing in there, then, and then it's just Chinese whispers that's gone forever and ever. Maybe. I mean, I quite enjoy the Chinese whisper that uh, that Rene and uh, Ray uh, just had regular badminton sessions. And that was the reason behind the demise of uh, Fulham FC. But uh, if anyone has any more conclusive proof as to whether that happened, uh, do get in touch. And that is it for the inaugural edition of Fulham Folklore. Uh, if there are any other tales you'd like us to retell, we'd love to do this podcast format 
uh, every now and again, uh, let us know. Email hello at fullamish.co.uk or you can find us on Twitter at fullamishpod. Drew, thank you. Thank you very much. It's uh, really fun researching and getting yourself back in that headspace. I mean, 10 year anniversary of the season coming up. Hopefully it ends a bit better uh, this time around, but thanks for having me. Um, Farrell, thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's it's always good to reminisce about what at the time might seem just really, really bleak. But actually, when you look back at it, it was bloody fucking hilarious. So thank you very much. <laughs> All right, that'll do. The Transfer Show will be back on Monday. Have a great weekend. Come on, you whites.